Okay, so Paul's done a little bit of my work introducing Luke, so thanks for that. Um, so we, we, we saw that a little bit there of, of Luke 1 where Luke says that he's addressing Theophilus, and the, the Gospel of Luke is actually connected with Acts, so some of you may not be aware that Luke also wrote Acts, so sometimes you'll hear reference to Luke-Acts, because it was actually one written piece, it was separated by different scrolls, but it was one account. So we go right from Luke 1, which is the, the, the very birth of Jesus. We follow Jesus' life. Then we move into Acts where we see Jesus ascend and we see the birth of the church. We see the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost. We see the church grow. We see it flourish. We see it persecuted. And, of course, through that period, we also see the account of Paul. So in Acts, we see that um, we understand that, that Luke was uh, a, a companion of Paul because there's a point in there where he starts talking, not in the third party, but he starts using the term we, which would suggest that uh, Luke was accompanying Paul on his journeys and spreading the gospel. Luke was uh, a doctor, and um, someone called him a medical missionary because he was a a doctor, but he was also an an evangelist. So you could say that he was a physician for for body and, and for soul as well. So the account of Luke is actually very, very extensive, it's, uh, there are lots of um, stories in there, lots of features in the, the Gospel of Luke that we don't find elsewhere. Um, it's extensive. And the, uh, the, we, see, we see that the, the extensive account of Luke and the, the detail in there is thought by scholars to be incredibly accurate. So he was also known as a, as a historian, a theologian, um, that geographically his accounts were very, very true, uh, based on what we, what we know from, through archaeology and through historical um, uh, scrutiny, Luke was historically very accurate. So we know that as a doctor, as an evangelist, as a uh, historian, Luke is someone that we can rely on in that sense. His gospel is a gospel of faith. It talks a lot about Jesus's lordship. It talks also about Jesus' regard for women. There are many accounts in here where women are the subject of Jesus' encounter and uh, it's quite notable for that. And time and time again, it talks about Jesus' concern and sympathy for those in distress, which is quite important when we start to look at this passage as well. But that is, that is a, a general theme. What I think it's also worth doing, I mean, it's good that we started at, at verse 31. I'd actually like to take us back a little bit further um, just to see what, what is happening here, because sometimes we can focus in so narrowly that, that we lose the lifeblood, if you like, of the scripture that leads up to this point and then what follows on from after that. And as they say, uh, text without context is a pretext to a proof text. And what that means, essentially, is that if sometimes if we narrow in on scriptures too, too finely and too narrow, that essentially we can make it say whatever we want. There's scripture in here that says there is no God. <coughs> That is what others are crying, and it says people will declare that there is no God. Of course, we could take that out and says what well, Scripture says, there's no God. So we have to be really careful that we don't take things out of context that way, and that we submit ourselves to the authority of the Bible, and not the other way around. That we put ourselves under the, under the Bible, and uh, that we don't use it as a tool for our own, our own good and our own benefit, and to strengthen our own argument. So what happens? Well, Luke 4, if you have a Bible, then it might be useful to refer to that. Up to this point, we have seen the birth of Jesus. 
we've seen uh, Jesus growing. We've seen John the Baptist. Just before Luke 4, Luke talks about the genealogy of Jesus. Now, we know that in Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus begins his account because it ties it in, roots it in the Old Testament, that we mustn't sever the New and the Old Testaments. Luke introduces it later, after the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus receives God's blessing. We then move into Luke 4, which starts immediately with the temptation of Jesus. I don't know if any of you have ever been struck by the the, 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 the positioning of these two accounts where we have the baptism of Jesus, we have God's blessing where he says a voice from heaven says you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased he hasn't done anything yet his ministry hasn't begun and God's saying to him at that point I love you and I'm, I'm pleased with you you haven't done anything but that doesn't matter and then straight away into the temptation of Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. Sometimes life can feel quite a lot like that, can't it? One minute, you feel like you're <laughs> truly blessed. And then, wham, a difficult encounter. 40 days in the wilderness as a metaphor can be quite uh, familiar sometimes. Through a time of great blessing, and then suddenly something changes. It's not new to Jesus. That's what happened to him. We see Satan tempting him. Interesting that in that Satan's earthly power of which he boasts, isn't questioned by Jesus at all. But what does Jesus do? He comes back to him with scripture. Then after that, we see Jesus in the temple. We see him proclaiming his purposes in the Nazarene synagogue. We see him being driven out as a result because what he's saying to the people there is not something they particularly want to hear. They are about to throw him off a cliff top to the rocks below. And amazingly, what does he do? He just walks right through the crowd and goes on his way. Jesus will determine where and how he will die. And then he amazes people by driving out the evil spirit of which we heard this morning. We will come back to that a little bit later. Then we have the account of Jesus healing Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And then after that, he moves on and starts to assemble his first disciples. The, so we have a, a healing sequence, a healing calling sequence here. So he, here he heals the mother-in-law and then he calls his disciples, which would make sense then if Simon Peter were to drop everything to follow Jesus. Well, he's just witnessed his mother-in-law being healed and the, the impure spirits being driven out. Why wouldn't you drop everything to follow someone who has spoken of and exhibited such great authority? It's a slightly different sequence in, uh, in Mark. The pattern that we do often see, actually, is in Luke-Acts, if we treat them together, is there is a movement from what happens in the temple as a scene, Here we go. what happens in the temple, the religion, moves to become a focus more on the household where we see the conflict that so often comes from the, uh, the, the religious order, the religious structure, the power struggles, the authority, the uh, exertion of, uh, of empirical um, uh, dominance moves into a sense of commonality, that they share things in common, especially when you go into Acts in the early church. 
what happens there? There's more of a fellowship. The Greek term for that is koinonia, really true, deep fellowship with each other. And we also see this move, this transition from Judaism through to the birth of early Christianity. So Luke Acts is very much a book of transition. And we start with the birth of Jesus, and then we move in and see the, the working of the Holy Spirit. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. Actually, it's probably more accurate if it's to call the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because that is an account of the Spirit at work. So that transition is really important, and it's useful for us because we see that Jesus here has gone from the synagogue where he's booted out because he's proclaiming things that people don't want to hear, and he finds himself in a household of people who need him. So the household was the setting, if you like, of the gospel's reception, and it was also the setting of the church growth. Funny, isn't it, that it's Jesus was born in a manger in a pretty grotty place. He died on a cross in humiliation and his church started through people in households and in everyday life in the streets not in the big shiny temples and for Luke the the household represents kingdom values the household represents this idea of family there's fellowship that we've talked about it's a place of generally it's a place of safety very often certainly in this culture as well it was a place of hospitality there was trust there was loyalty and there's a mutuality of obligation. There were, there were roles, yes, and there was reciprocation. But it was a place where there was much more of a servant heart, if you like, that people would do things for others because it was a part of a, a, of a family love and bonds, not through any other motives. So that's where we find ourselves now. There are three aspects that I think we can get from this account three things that are highly connected. I don't think it would do the scripture justice just to say, well, let's just focus on one of these. Sometimes it can be, too, it can be easy to overcomplicate things and it can be easy to oversimplify them as well. But what I would like to do is just touch on three aspects of, uh, three layers, if you like, that we can, we can see in this, in this passage. So the three things are healing, kingdom, and faith, and how each of those play a role here. So Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. Uh, it's certainly a high-grade fever. It may, some people may think it included dysentery. It was certainly serious enough that it, it could have been malaria. Uh, Luke, remember, was a physician. He was a doctor. And he actually uses a different word for this to, to Mark and Matthew, which does reflect his medical background. So it was a serious, serious condition. She was in a bit of a poor state couple of things here that we see from Jesus' interaction with her. First is this sense of absolute authority that Jesus has. I don't know if you noticed, it says that he stood over her and then rebuked her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. <coughs> Rebuke, I think, is, a, is an unusual word here because he Jesus had just driven out an evil spirit previously, and now he's rebuking a fever. He's treating this as a, as a personal object. It's not something that he prays over or he lays hands on her and it's gone, it's healed. He rebukes it. It almost has a personality. And remember, Luke was a medical doctor, so this isn't something that he would necessarily be used to, to seeing. 
because he would want to account for these things as a physician. But Jesus rebukes her fever. Some have wondered if there's a link here between sin and disease. I think that's a, that's a whole new area to look into, and I think, I, I think it's troublesome. But certainly, I do think that sin and disease are linked because they both oppose the natural order of the kingdom. The absolute authority of Jesus in this is, is also key because we have to bear in mind the, the cultural, social context of, of the time. And first century Palestinians felt there was very little that a human being could do to counteract forces of nature. It's very different today, of course, although we do find ourselves sometimes taken by surprise. But that level of control over nature that we can boast about certainly was not a view that the Palestinians had. There was nothing or very little that humans could do over such forces. So this idea of Jesus coming along and casting out demons with such authority, it amazed people. I mean, there were exorcists in the day, we see them in Acts, who weren't particularly successful. And for hundreds of years prior to this, in the Old Testament, there was no casting out of demons. Actually, there's very little account in the Old Testament of demons being cast out that way. There was certainly uh, impure forces and impure spirits going on to which the Israelites were tempted. You know, they were surrounded by uh, religions and cults, and sometimes they gave in and and, uh, expressed an interest in it themselves. But this idea that someone could come along and start casting out demons in such a way would have been incredible and a real shock to the culture. Mark 1, verse 27 says that the the people were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching, and with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. It's really important that we get our heads around just how much of a shock this was, how much authority Jesus exercised in this account. And then the mother-in-law, the woman, immediately gets up, and she starts to perform the duties of a busy hostess. What does it say? So he bent over and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. <laughs> it's quite amazing, isn't it, that she wasn't just lying there. This is amazing. Oh, let me just bask in this. Oh, she didn't leg it either out of the house and just go start telling everyone of, of this good fortune that she enjoyed. She knew that Jesus had just served her, and it was her time to start serving him again. That she, she acted in such a way that the healing is complete and it's final. You could say in that sense that the mother-in-law was the first deacon, in inverted commas, in the church because her service flowed from Jesus' prior service to her. The second thing, as much as the, the, the display of Jesus' authority here, is that it's really important that we understand that this was more than physical healing. Now, we could just treat this as physical healing. There's nothing in there that says she was struggling emotionally, psychologically. But, again, within the cultural context of that day, they didn't have that tendency to separate out the physical and the emotional as we do. You know, there's been a lot, of, lot in the news recently, hasn't there, in social care and, and problems with the NHS and, and mental health being, not being taken as seriously as other areas of health care. Because we do have that tendency mental health, emotional health is one of those things that's easier to ignore in a way because it's going on inside it's not, it doesn't, have, doesn't always have physical or visual symptoms 
But there was no Hebrew term for body. The cultural tradition of the Old Testament, which we then later see moving into the New Testament, it, regarded the it never regarded the physical body as having a reality on its own. You see the, the head and the heart, the body and the brain, they were all one thing. They were all connected. Health was never narrowly confined purely to the physical aspect of health. There was an emphasis on an integrated harmony. And if you were deficient in any zone, then that could be emotional, mental, psychological, it could be physical. But then that was affecting your whole sense of well-being and your whole state of health. So there was much more... Uh, There was much more of a priority here on state of being rather than an ability to function. So healing was about complete well-being, not merely an absence of infirmity. And the, the word for, the Greek word for salvation is soteria. And that comes from the Greek word sozo. And sozo actually means healing restoration, preservation. That there's something about salvation which is linked not just to plucking somebody out of doom, but also to restore them, to heal them, to save them. That's what it means to be saved. The, it's great to hear that there were four more people pulled out of the hotel in Italy. On Friday I saw uh, footage on the BBC Twitter feed of the first ten people being pulled out of that hotel. And the joy that was there was incredible. There was such a sense of celebration and relief it was almost palpable. And it struck me this morning in the service, thinking of that. That's what happens when a heart turns back to Jesus. Jesus plucks us out. And like those rescuers, they're not going to just leave them, dump them on the side and say, there we go, our job's done. What are they going to do? They're going to take them away. They're going to give them food. They're going to nourish them. They're going to give them warmth. They're going to clean them up. They're going to get them back on their feet. They're going to restore them. And that's what Jesus does. Salvation isn't just about rescuing us from hell. It's about restoring us ready for heaven. And health and well-being and restoration are all tied in together as one thing. So when we pray for people for their salvation, it's not merely that we're praying for them to be saved. The drug addict on the corner, we don't pray just for them to be saved. That's the start of the process. We pray for them to find life, to find purpose, to receive love, to be able to give love. We pray for them to become the work of art that God always imagined them to be. Where we see coal, God sees diamonds. But it tends to be different today, this idea of the physical and the emotional and mental well-being. And potentially the, the change happened through the period of Platonic Greek thought. So we've, we've heard of Plato. And what Plato would do was to distinguish between, or make a disting distinction between the mind and the physical reality. So this idea that you could flourish in one but struggle in another, when you look at a lot of the, the um, 
debauchery that happened around that time. They didn't see that it was going to affect their eternity because what you did in the body had very little bearing on what would happen to the soul. So you could get away with an awful lot and you knew that you would, your future would still be pretty secure. And interestingly, that, that's why the resurrection for so many at that time was laughable. This idea that someone could die in body and then be raised back from the dead as a human. So when John writes in his gospel, and time and time again he talks about Jesus being God and man, and he starts with the logos, this idea that before time Jesus was as the word of God, that meant something to people of his day that perhaps we lose. Because for them, the idea of a physical human and this idea of Jesus' word existing pre-time it was really hard. They could, it struggled to really bring those together. But that appealed, to their, that appealed to their sensibilities that in Jesus we find God incarnate, God and man together. And some would say that perhaps this uh, the celibate priesthood that some denominations work on Maybe that's something that stems from this Platonic theory that higher things are more important than earthly things. But actually the rabbinic tradition that we see in this time, in, in uh, the time of the Gospels, the rabbinic tradition was centered around the family. And it was centered around the interaction of the family and this tight knitting together and fellowship of a family. The family was crucial. All, all of this matters. All of this matters that we see people as a whole. That at that time, the healing wouldn't have just been assumed to be a physical healing, but healing in a much greater, greater sense. Jared <coughs> Kelly says this. He says, Brilliance, nothing less, is God's goal for you and for each of us. The dullest and most disfigured of human lives are included in God's plans for brilliance. No life is so lost that God's light cannot shine through it. No human is so depraved that God does not desire to pour out his wisdom. The second layer that we see in this passage is about God's kingdom. So verses 42 to 44 at daybreak, Jesus went out to the solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So the people of Capernaum, they wanted to keep him to themselves. They wanted to keep him and his gifts to themselves. But Jesus says, this isn't why I was here. Yeah, we see in the Gospels... Jesus exhibiting something of the nature of God, of course we do, and modeling things that we should aspire to. But most important than that is that he came to proclaim this kingdom. And this is the first time that a reference to a kingdom, this sort of central metaphor in Jesus' proclamation, this is the first time that we see this. This was a bit of a, a, an unusual concept in Old Testament times, but Jesus was God's son here and now. This is the kingdom come. And spreading that message was more important than pockets of healing. And of course healing is important. Really important. But that's not everything. That The message of the gospel must trump that and must be shared as widely as possible. 
So the good news that Jesus proclaims, the kingdom, which is the presence of the king, talks about his rule and reign. That's what the kingdom means. It means the rule and reign of God. And it starts to show us something here of the gift economy of heaven. This idea that we don't keep things for ourselves, but we share them. We give, in or, we receive in order to give. That it would be quite easy for Capernaum to say, oh, come on, Jesus, stay with us. There's still quite a few more people here who need a bit of healing. Go on, spend a bit more time with us. But what Jesus shows us is that this message needs to be shared. That what we have, we need to share. And there's something, <laughs> I think there's something here that the church, not us specifically, but the church with a capital C tends to do, doesn't it? It tends to say, stay with us, Jesus. Come and bless us more. Be with us. We want to keep you for ourselves. And Jesus says, I want to feed you and I want to heal you, but don't keep it to yourselves. I'm needed to the ends of the earth. This is the gift economy of heaven. You receive in order that you might give. So there is something about the accessibility of the kingdom here. There's also something about the visibility. The Lord's Prayer says, on earth as in heaven. This is heaven coming to earth. The the kingdom of God, the reign of God, is demonstrated wherever the spirit of God is active. And this is the reign of God coming down and infusing earth with God's presence. This isn't about preparing people to get to heaven. This is about preparing people to receive God, to receive heaven. Because the kingdom doesn't change God, it changes us. Someone talked about we busy ourselves so much preparing heaven-bound lifeboats, whilst heaven is preparing earth-bound supply ships. The time and again we see God comes to dwell with us. Life isn't about just preparing ourselves for heaven. The Christian aid motto, which I think they've lost now, but we believe in life before death, they said. What a great, what a great strap line. Shouldn't that be the strap line of every Christian? Someone said that a pastor's job is to prepare people for death, and I can see what he means that ultimately that's where we're all heading. But doesn't it deny the reality of what we have now and what we're called to do now? In Eden, we see God walking through the garden, spending time with his people. In the nation of Israel, we see God's presence with the people. Through Jesus, we see God in the dirt and the muck of the people because he knew we couldn't get to him, so he came to us. The book of Revelation at the end, what does it show us? It shows us that there's a new heaven and a new earth. God will be with his people. That this is the kingdom that has come down and is with us and among us. It's now and it's not yet. It's not here in its entirety. And these miracles that Jesus undertakes... And this, by the way, that Luke 4 is the start of Jesus' three-year ministry. The miracles here demonstrate, as so often miracles are, they demonstrate a different view of reality. They're like little windows, if you like, to a deeper sense of reality. So often in here, in the accounts of the Gospels, the miracles represent something much bigger. So yeah, they're important to the people involved in the here and now but they also symbolise something, a new reality, something much, much deeper going on. And so when we proclaim the Christian message, when we tell others about God, 
we're not talking about things that we've imagined or conceived or dreamt. We're talking about the reality as we see it. Someone refers to the... the I, I'm into design, but I'm not into art so much. But they talk about the Fauvists and their, their use of colour in their paintings. It wasn't like the Surrealists. It was their understanding of colour. It wasn't purely dreamt or imagined. This is how they saw the world. This was the reality as they saw it. And that's like the, the Christian message. The gospel is about the kingdom being here among us. A fantastic theologian called Alistair McGrath says this, The doctrine of the incarnation speaks of God entering into the messy, fallen world we inhabit. It invites us to think of God opening a window into his being and a door into his presence through Jesus Christ. It invites us to think of God opening a window into his being and a door into his presence through Jesus Christ. The third level I mentioned was faith. So we've seen a demonstration of healing. We've seen a demonstration of the kingdom. And of course, I don't think we can talk about those things without looking at faith. When uh, Jesus drives out an evil spirit, slightly before our account, so from 31. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon. This is verse 33. An evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. This demon recognized Jesus before the man did. Someone said to me the other day that all that really matters in the Christian faith is that we believe Jesus. And I can see where he's coming from, but the demons believe in Jesus. What they don't have is a faith in him. See, recognizing Jesus and having faith in Jesus quite different things. And where was faith in this account of uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law? There's nothing in it that says that she requested healing. Sometimes we assume that people aren't healed because they don't have enough faith. I think that's a bit of a slippery slope, if I'm honest. What faith did the mother-in-law have here? We don't know. Certainly, she had faith that he existed. There's a knowledge of his reality there that obviously today we don't have because it requires faith for us to even believe that he existed. For the woman, he was there in front of her. So that hurdle, if you like, had already been overcome. I wonder what faith she had then. There's no account of her needing faith in order for this healing to happen. And the Messiah then heals everyone who came to him. No questions asked, were there? You come to Jesus seeking healing, that's what you get. Now there are times in the Gospels where there are one or two exceptions to that. But the Gentiles would receive Jesus and many of the prophets before him, before the Jews, that actually the process of seeking Jesus, of finding him out, is perhaps all that is needed for healing to happen. That prayer for healing in itself is an act of faith. There's a 
I don't know if any of you have seen this. This is Coventry Cathedral. It's a cathedral welcome. I won't read it all because we don't have the time. But it talks about the, 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 a special welcome that's extended to everyone who enters. So we extend a special welcome to those who are single, married, divorced, widowed, gay, confused, filthy rich, comfortable or dirt poor. It talks about wailing babies and excited toddlers. It talks about people who are sick of the church or come regularly. It talks about those who are young or old, vegetarians, junk food eaters, tree huggers. It talks about those who think the earth is flat, work too hard, don't work, can't spell, or here because granny is visiting and wanted to come to the cathedral. If you're inked, pierced, both or neither. There's a special welcome there. A friend of mine who's not a Christian sent that to me because he thought I'd like it. And I did have to get back to him and say, it doesn't say about northerners, but I'm sure if you went along, <laughs> I'm sure they'd find you a seat and smile nicely. <laughs> and I know many people would struggle with this, but this dilutes what the Christian faith is about. Jesus had issues with some of these sorts of people. And if someone came into the service today and maybe they didn't look like us, maybe they didn't smell like us, maybe they didn't necessarily behave like us, we'd feel uncomfortable. I certainly would. And this idea of a, of a welcome to all, oh, that dilutes the gospel. Yeah, but it's all about love, someone will say. Yeah, but God also has standards. What happens if we welcome all, but we expect a change to happen after that encounter? that we invite all into the church as they are, but we don't expect them to stay there, ourselves included. See, time and again we see that there's an encounter with Jesus, and then that's when change happens. It's not vice versa. We receive God's mercy, and then we receive God's grace. Because Christians, we're not saved by good deeds, but we're saved for good deeds. That God welcomes all because he wants to change us. He has a purpose for us. He has a, a knowledge of what he created us to be, and at the moment we fall well short of that. And that's the same for everyone, for each of us. For everyone out there, certainly, as much as for every one of us in here. So is there something about faith being required perhaps after healing, maybe if not before? That there are accounts in here where an encounter with Jesus, healing or not, changes everything. You can't go back to life as it was after that sort of encounter with Jesus. There's no denying it. C.S. Lewis said that, if true, Christianity is of utmost importance. If false, it's of no importance. What it cannot be is moderately important. You see, you can't encounter truth and then deny it well, you can try, but it will soon come back and bite you. That an encounter with Jesus has to change things. And when we receive healing, faith continues. Um, some of you may or may not know that uh, Ali was, uh, suffered from severe ME for seven and a half years. This was just, before, just when we were engaged and then through our early years of marriage. And um, she was wheelchair-bound for about five and a half of those years. She was healed at Spring Harvest through prayer. Incredible story. I won't go into the detail now, but do talk to me or Ali about it, because we never tire of telling the story. It's fantastic. When Ali was healed, 
it was really, really crucial that, because that's when faith really kicks in. He said, we believe that this healing has happened and that it's total healing. So, how do we respond? We need to give the wheelchair away. We gave that away to a nursing home. The mobility scooter, we sold it. The, 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 the mobility aids that she had from, from the NHS, we were able to give those back. She phoned up to the, the, the uh, disability living allowance and said, I'm better now, I don't need the, the monthly payments. And the man on the phone was amazed. Why are you telling me? You could have kept those. They're not means tested. You could have those till your dying day if you wanted. But all right, we'll stop those if that's what you want. And it required faith to say, I believe that this healing has happened and that it's in fullness. The lady, who, one of the ladies who prayed with Ellie knew of someone else who had been prayed for once and healed. I can't remember if it was ME, but it was certainly some debilitating illness. And sadly, that lady didn't want to give up her equivalent of disability living allowance, kept some of the aids and mobility things that she had just in case it came back. And sadly, it did. It slowly crept back. I think even as victims, sometimes, whether that's health issues, whether it's marriage issues, relational issues, whatever we are victims of, we've got to take responsibility for our actions. And sometimes it's easy to keep these safety nets under us, isn't it? That we, yeah, we trust in God's provision, but I might just have that as a plan B. I might just not let go of that, just in case things don't quite work out. Maybe God's not quite got the power or the, the intent to bring this issue to full resolution. And this oppression that we experience can sometimes become a new reality. And then, ironically, it becomes a bit of a comfort zone. So, well, if God wanted to heal me, he'll heal me. I don't need to go to prayer events, and I don't need to continually pray and seek him in that. If God wanted my marriage to be different, then he'll do it. And very often we have to relinquish something. We have to put things down that we hold on to so that we can receive things that Jesus wants to give us. Maybe it's disability living allowance. Maybe it's a wheelchair. Maybe it's our children, our relatives, our relationships. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's material. But that's where the faith really kicks in. Say, Lord, if this is your working, if this is you moving, then I submit these things to you in order to receive what you have for me. Because the right thought, orthodoxy, needs the right action, orthopraxy. Lastly, this is a message for everybody. I appreciate that some folk might be here thinking, I've prayed for healing for years and nothing's happened, nothing's changed. I've been praying for these circumstances for years. Don't give up. Don't give up. Healing isn't guaranteed through faith. Healing isn't guaranteed for anyone. Salvation is guaranteed for those who come and seek, and healing will follow. So the kingdom may not be now. It might be not yet. The kingdom is here, and it's also on its way. But importantly, it's for all of us and all of us. Because we're all in need of ongoing healing and restoration 
That might look different for each of us. Someone said this, I don't think it's St. Augustine, because some people credit it to him, but it's difficult to find the source. A church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. We might be sitting here thinking, I'm fine, I'm alright. I've got enough money, work's alright, I'm feeling quite sprightly. I don't need healing, but we're all in need of healing. We're all in need of this constant restoration to become more and more like Jesus, because that's what it means to reflect him. The kingdom means that, and the presence of the Holy Spirit that we see in Luke Acts means that we become Jesus' address. That this is where the Spirit lives. Christ in us, the power of glory. And we're the most important dwelling for the Lord. I'll finish with another quote from C.S. Lewis. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself.